For last week, we began a study in 1 John 2, verses 7 and 8. Go ahead and turn there. And we were considering the topic last week of God's commandments. I started talking about what I referred to as a theology of God's commandments. And I told you that I believe that John is bringing to our attention the theme of God's commandments because he's just been talking about what it means to know and obey Christ. And so in order to be able to know and obey Christ, we need to have a proper understanding of the commandments that we're to know and to obey. So I'm going to begin by reading the text this morning, and I want to start all the way back in verse 3, because we haven't read these verses in a while, just to get a little sense of how John is connecting the idea of commandments to what he was talking about earlier in the idea of knowing and obeying Christ. So I'm going to read 1 John 2, verses 3 to 8. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, And in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, the topic of knowing and obeying Christ that John was talking about earlier in those verses, that's a very relational idea, right? Knowing someone, seeking to do what they say, that conveys a sense of relationship and even intimacy that you might have with Someone Remember the great analogy that we went to when we were talking about knowing and obeying Christ, the analogy in John 15, the fact that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. You don't really get more intimate and relational than being actually physically joined as a branch is to a vine. But I don't know if we have the same intimate relationship kind of idea when we think about commandments. After all, commandments sound harsh. They feel like the barking of a stern general. And they seem like the kinds of things that we don't eagerly line up to have dished out to us. Sign me up for more and more commandments is not usually what we think. And at least that's the case for most commandments that we receive here on earth in our, in our civil contexts. We don't particularly care for some of these commandments, like the commandment to pay taxes or the commandment to show up early at work when you're asked to, or the commandment to drive the speed limit. All these and others are commandments that we usually don't think about as evidences of the joys of having an intimate relationship with somebody. We don't always enjoy sweet fellowship with the internal revenue service or with the corporate brass of your company 
or with the officer sitting at the speed trap. Those aren't people that we think about having a strong, close bond with. But there's a sense in which we are supposed to view God's commandments as something of sweet fellowship, something that are the fruit or the result or, or the means of gaining fellowship, a close relationship. They are things of utmost delight. Listen to the following scripture verses and think about if this is truly how you view God's commandments. Psalm 19 and verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 112 verse 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And then we have several mentions of God's commandments in Psalm 119. I'll just go through some of them. Verse 6, I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. Not just walk in the way, run in the way of his commandments. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verses 47 and 48, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. Verse 60, I hasten and I do not delay to keep your commandments. 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge because I believe in your commandments. Verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And then verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. And then even the last verse of Psalm 119, verse 176 says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And then he connects that to this. Seek your servant because I do not forget your commandments. I think it's safe to say that we don't tend to run in the way of our office schedule that we are demanded to keep per our employer. Nor do we delight in the commandments of the speed limits at all times. Nor do we long and pant after keeping the commandment to pay our income tax. But those are supposed to be the heartfelt inclinations of God's people towards all of God's commandments, which, by the way, actually does include all of those seemingly mundane kinds of commandments. We're supposed to see God's commandments as being better than gold. If we were given the choice between having a million dollars and having a chance to obey God's commandment, we should actually want, not just because we think we're supposed to, we should actually want rather to obey God than to have the money. Yet I don't think we're always in that spot where we actually do value his commandments as we should. We're not always there. 
And part of it is because I think we often fail to remember the important unity that exists between the commandments themselves and the one who's given them. We fail to remember the connection between the giver and the command. And it's this connection that I think John is bringing to our attention in this final aspect of his theology of God's commandments. The first one that we looked at last week is that God's commandments are connected to creation. And the second aspect from last week is that God's commandments are connected to conversion. And then for today, we're going to think about this third aspect of of connection to God's commandments. And it's this, that God's commandments are connected to Christ. And I believe that John would have us know this very clearly because of what he says here in verse 8 of our text. So let's look at at it together. We're going to be looking at verse 8 in detail today. John says here, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So we're going to dive into this verse. And if you look at it and just make some careful observations of it, you would think to yourself a very important question. I have worded the last point, the last connection. The first one was creation. The second one was conversion, connected to conversion. And the third one connected to Christ. But whose name do you not see in verse 8? We don't see explicitly Christ or Jesus in there. Instead, what we have in this verse are very clear allusions to Jesus. And in these allusions, we'll find our outline this morning for understanding this verse, which is to understand how it is that God's commandments are connected to Christ. In 1 John 2 and verse 8 that I just read, we see that Christ is connected to God's commandments in three different ways. And each of these ways also relates to us. So we're going to see that Christ is not merely connected to God's commandments, but he is connected to God's commandments in three ways for us, for our benefit. And so I hope you'll be encouraged to hear about how Christ serves us and how it is that he is related to God's commandments. And the first way in which Christ serves us in connection to God's commandments is this, that he is our provider. He provides God's commandments to us. Number one, Christ is our provider. And for this point, I want to just make a very simple observation of something that John says kind of in the middle of verse And it's something that he also said in verse 7. He says there in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing to you. And then in verse 8, he says, It is a new commandment that I am writing to you. And we have to be quick to see that when John says that he's writing to them, that he's basically telling them that it is Christ who is saying this to them. John knows that what he is writing is The word of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 13 times in this letter in which he indicates that he's writing something to his audience. And from what he wrote in the prologue, we know that everything he says that he's writing is not something that he's just coming up with. He's not just writing to them random thoughts that he thinks they should know. 
In 1 John 1 and verse 3, John says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So John is, want, is not wanting to get the credit for giving God's commands to God's people. He's wanting it to be very clear when he says, I'm writing to you, that he's writing to us what was already given to him. John is providing to us what Christ had already provided to him. And there's actually a lot that we could say about this point. To think of Jesus as the source of God's commandments, it's an entire theology lesson in and of itself. Just think about how John introduces the second person of the Trinity in the opening to his gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. That's very different from Matthew's opening in which he presents Jesus as the as Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's different from Mark's opening, where we read that it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. John's gospel opening is very unique in that Jesus is referred to as the word. He is God's word for mankind. He is the one who makes God understandable. He is the one who can take the mind of God and relate it to the mind of man. Why? Because he is God, and so he understands God, and he is also man, and so he understands man. And so in this way, Jesus is the Word. From eternity past, the second person of the Trinity was the Word. Jesus was always to be the one through whom God's commandments would be made known. It is only through Christ that we can truly and fully know God. It is only through Christ that we can know God's commandments. It's only through Christ that we can know God's salvation. It is through Christ and Christ alone that all of God's revelation is clearly made known. The author of Hebrews goes so far as to imply that there will never be any other revelation from God beyond what has been given to us in Christ. So Christ is final and sufficient revelation. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And it's interesting that in the verse there, he says he has spoken not is speaking, not will speak, but that he has finally and definitively spoken, and we have that final speech in the pages of Scripture. And so it is that Christ is our only provider of God's commandments. That's the first point. Christ provides God's commandments to us. And there's so much more we could say about that, but John is just scratching the surface of that thought and saying that he's writing to us the words that were given to him by Christ. Secondly, the second way in which Christ is connected to God's commandments is this, that Christ is our pattern. Not only is Christ our provider, secondly, Christ is our pattern. And to begin to understand this point, we have to observe that John presents us with a little paradox in verse 8. You know what a paradox is. It's a seeming contradiction. 
something that seems to conflict. Remember in verse 7, John says he's giving to us an old commandment. It's an old one. But then a few words later in verse 8, he says that it's also a new commandment. And that's the paradox. How can this commandment be old according to verse 8 and then, or verse 7, and then at the same time as he says, be new? Seems like a conflict, but it really isn't, and here's why. It's not a conflict to say that it's both an old and a new commandment because he's talking about an old commandment that now has something new about it. Or to think of it differently, you could say that the old has been renewed. And so in that sense, it's both old and new. It existed before, so it's old, but it's got something of brand new quality to it. And so in that sense, it's new. So to use a mundane illustration, if something, it's something like if you were to restore an old Model T and to have it be completely reworked on the inside so that it runs and can go fast or whatever. But it, it's an old car, but it's completely renewed. Or if you are... In work, working in a, in a house that was old and you're renovating it to make it something new. It's both old and new at the same time. And I believe this is precisely the kind of thing that John is saying. He's indicating that God's commandments that he's giving, or rather that Christ is giving through him, he's indicating that these commandments have been around for a very long time, and in that sense they're old, but that there is now something of a renewed quality to them, and so in that sense, they are new. And so then the natural question that we would ask at this point, what is it that makes them renewed? So if they were old and now there's something new to them, what is that thing that makes these old commandments to become like new? And I'd like for us to begin to answer this question by first looking up the only other place in the New Testament where we find this phrase, new commandment. The phrase is composed of two Greek words side by side, and we find these words together like this here in 1 John 2, in verse 7, and verse 8. And then we find it one other time in a very important verse in John's Gospel. And it seems that John probably has this other verse in mind when he writes what he does here in verse 8 because it's very similar teaching to what we read in John's gospel. Specifically in John 13 and verse 34. In John 13, 34, we read that Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, A new commandment I give to you, and that phrase, new commandment, that's the same construction as we have back in 1 John 2, 7 and 8. And those are the only three places in all the New Testament that it's used. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now that verse clearly has something to do with love with loving each other. And so it's possible to come to the conclusion that the newness of the command has to do with what? With love. We might arrive at that conclusion, but I think that's not quite accurate. And the reason is because the old commandment also had to do with love. That's not something new. Leviticus 19 and 18, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
The command to love one another was old. And we read through all the Old Testament, the many commands that have to do with loving God over all else. So I don't think that it's the idea of love that makes this commandment new. The new thing that we find in John 13, verse 34, is not that Jesus commands love because the Old Testament also commands love, but rather it is that Jesus says that he is the example to follow. That's the new thing. He says in John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And we need to not miss the importance of this. The thing that is emphasized as being new is not so much the loving one another part as it is the as I have loved you part. Let me put it this way. The thing that is new here is that the one who has given the commandments is the one who's now doing them. So the thing that makes the old commandment renewed is the fact that God not only commands it, but that now God also does it. In other words, the commands which Jesus gives are new because now we see that the giver of the commands is himself following them. Just think about that. In the Old Testament, when God gave commandments, there was no second person of the Trinity there on earth to demonstrate for God's people how they were to be obeyed. Israel was simply supposed to obey. But from the birth of Christ onward to today, we now do have a divine example of what it looks like to perfectly obey God's commandments. This pattern is seen not only to those who lived during the life of Christ and saw him, but it's also seen by us as we read of him in his word. And that's not only clear from what John says, Jesus said in John 13, 34, but it's also clear from what John says back in our text in 1 John 2 and verse 8, because in verse 8 he says that it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him. In other words, in him, in the life of Christ, this renewed commandment is in true operation. It's a true quality of him. Christ truly follows these old commandments. And we could probably go so far as to say that John is saying that this commandment is to be considered new even when it's old precisely because it is truly operating in the life of Christ. Jesus made it clear in John 13 that the commandments he was giving were new because of the fact that he was also providing an example for obedience. And so also John is teaching us that the commandments of God are to be thought of as renewed because of the fact that they were truly followed in the life of Christ. They were true in him. So let me go over that again just to make sure we understand. Jesus indicates in John 13... Verse 34, that this commandment, his commandment, is new because of the fact that it came with a divine example to follow. As I have loved, so you are to love. Not only did Christ give the command to love, but he also obeyed as the motivation for us to obey. And then in 1 John 2 and verse 8, we read that this, new, this, new, this commandment is new because it is true in him. 
This is to say that God's commandments are not only given by Christ, but they are also truly practiced in the life of Christ. And if you have not noticed by now in your Christian experience that Christianity is vastly different from all other world religions, then I think this point would make it patently clear for you. If you consider the pagan gods of Greece and Rome, never would the mighty heavenly rulers think that they needed to descend down to the realm of the little people down below and themselves do what they told these people to do. Nor would the God of Islam trouble himself with trying to do what he asks of his followers to do. After all, he's the highest of all beings. Why does he have to trifle himself with the the affairs of the little people that he's commanding? Isn't this also what our own earthly kings and rulers do? They make rules for the people, but they themselves don't really have to obey them. They're just to keep the people organized. And it's at this thought that we begin to get a glimpse of a very important principle. Because you see, God's commandments are not to be thought of as mere rules to follow because God is the boss and we're the little creature people that he has to keep organized. It's not like when the big sister plays mom and bosses the little sister around while she just sits in the chair and has the little sister serve her all the time. No, when God gives a commandment, the commandment itself is an expression of his very nature. Whatever God commands for his creatures to do is actually a means by which they might become like him. Because a commandment is an expression of his very character. To be an all good God means that everything that comes from you is good. Therefore, whatever God commands is not only good in and of itself, but it will bring about the best possible good in the lives of those who follow it. And to be a pure God means that everything that comes from you is pure. And so the commandments that God gives are themselves pure and clean, and they therefore purify and cleanse those who follow them. God is also the most lovely and the most beautiful being, And therefore, all his commandments are most lovely and most beautiful of all. There's nothing more lovable or more beautiful than God's commandments. And so also we become lovely and beautiful as we follow them. And I could go on and on talking about how God's attributes are reflected in his commandments. But the whole point of the matter is this, that if Jesus was to live the best human life possible, then of course he would find his satisfaction in following his own commandments. There's nothing more satisfying to follow than his own commandments. And so it is also true that if we want to live the best and fullest and happiest human life that we can possibly live, then there is no set of commandments to follow that can bring us the kind of life other than God's. Most of the people on earth concoct their own formula of commandments, like a a recipe or a a bag of potpourri. They take a little bit of Confucius's commandments, and they learn this from Gandhi and this from the Dalai Lama and some of the Pope's thoughts. 
And then they flavor it all together with a whole lot of whatever they think is best for them. And so most people pick and choose their commandments, as they call them, for life, like they're going through some sort of morality buffet. That's usually the way people do it. And the reason they do this is because they don't know how good God is. They don't know that God is good and true, and they don't view his commandments as good and true. And so they try to invent some that they think are better. But Jesus, as our pattern, when he is subjecting himself to various commandments, whatever the options are, he chooses his own or God's commandments to follow. He chooses the best ones. After being tempted to sin in the wilderness, Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John 4, 34, the Lord said that his food is to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. And Jesus also said in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus patterns us how to do life, patterns for us how to do life. Humans were made to find God's commandments as more desirable even than food, and Jesus is our perfect pattern of this. Humans were made to have an unquenchable appetite for God's commandments, as we read in the verses from Psalm 119. And Jesus is the perfect example of what it is to delight in God's commandments. Here's another silly illustration of this. Let's say that if a salesperson were to walk in after church and start trying to convince us that some gizmo that he has is, is worth buying. Let's say it's a jet pack. I would love to have a jet pack that would let you fly around and travel very quickly and safely and, and even inexpensively somehow. We probably would say that we don't believe him. I don't believe that your jet pack does what you're saying it would do. And so maybe if he's a good salesperson, he would say, well, don't just take my word for it. Let me strap it on here and I'll show you. And then he would attempt to fly around with it to either convince us or to crash and burn so that we're convinced it's a fake. If you really believe that something is the best, then what are you willing to do? You're willing to put it to the test. You're willing to stake everything on this thing that you think is the best and, and count on it for others to see. And since Jesus has provided us with God's commandments that he knows are best for every situation in human life, no matter what you encounter, no matter how dark the situation is, there is always a divine commandment to fit the situation. And Jesus knows this. And so he has taken also upon himself the responsibility of being the pattern of what it looks like to follow God's commandments in every circumstance. So Christ is the provider of God's commandments to us. He does this through his servants in the recording of Scripture. And Christ is also the pattern for following God's commandments. But if you're like me, you aren't really good at following what Christ has patterned for you to do. Many times we are faced with choosing between obeying God's commandments and not obeying God's commandments. And the not obeying option sometimes seems like the better selection. 
Sometimes it just seems easier to not obey. Sometimes it seems more pleasing or more comfortable to just not obey. And even though we may know in our heads that we're supposed to value God's commandments highest of all, after all, Jesus did, we don't always know with our hearts that God's commandments are more valuable. Our hearts often lead us to value disobedience over obedience. And we know it's a dumb thing to do, but in our hearts we make that evaluation all the time because we often sin. And essentially that's what happens every time we sin. Every sin begins when we fail to esteem God's commandments as highly as we ought to. Or to say it another way, we sin because we fail to see God's commandments as being as valuable as they truly are. Every sin is us not recognizing the value of God's commandments. And so we need help. And that brings us to the third ministry of Christ to us in connection to God's commandments. Not only is Christ our provider and our pattern when it comes to God's commandments, Christ is also our power for obeying God's commandments. Number three, Christ is our power. Back at 1 John 2 and verse 8, John says, It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So not only is this renewed commandment truly operating in Christ, John says it's true in him, but also, John says it's truly operating in us. In other words, we now possess the ability to practice obedience to God's commandments in truth. And John makes it clear in the last part of this verse that we used to not be able to do this, but now we can. We used to be part of darkness, that which is passing away, he says, and now we are part of the true light, which is already shining. And especially in John's writing, the contrast of darkness and light is very, very significant. When John refers to darkness, he's pretty much always talking about the sinful state of man in rejection to Christ, or he's just referring to the realm of Satan and his minions. That's darkness to John. And when John refers to light, he's always referring to the blessed presence and influence of Christ in the life of the believer. Or he's just referring to Jesus. He is the light, John sometimes says. And here in 1 John 2 and verse 8, it's no different. This is how John is using the idea of darkness and light. The darkness which is passing away, is the old life in sin and rebellion to God's commandments that we all used to walk in. Remember chapter uh, 1, walking in darkness. And the light which has already come is a reference to the new life in Christ that we came to possess because of our regeneration. It's the new life of light that we now walk in. That's, again, chapter 1, walking in the light. John's kind of borrowing from those themes, assuming we already know what he's talking about. And we must pay careful attention to see the fact that John connects this change from darkness to light to the fact that his new commandment is truly operating in us. 
Notice that he says, it is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This means that the only way in which we can come to put God's commandments into true practice is if what thing has happened to us. The only way that God's commandments are true in us, truly put into practice in us, is if the darkness is exiting and the true light has come. That's the only way. And to the point that I want to make here, we have to also conclude that it is none other than Christ himself who is in view when John talks about the true light which is already shining. What, what light is that? What is he specifically referring to? And I think it's really clear that he's talking about Jesus specifically who has come. And we can make that obvious connection with no trouble at all if we simply turn in our Bibles to read the first 10 verses of John's gospel. I've already alluded to it once before this morning. So let's do it now. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, maybe just the first 9 verses. And we'll see that it is Jesus himself who is this true light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And notice all the references there in those 10 verses to light and darkness, and specifically to the light. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Verses 7 and 8, we read that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light. And then, most importantly there in verse 9, we have an exact match to an important phrase that we came across in 1 John 2 and verse 8. In verse 9, John 1, 9 as well as in 1 John 2.8, we see the phrase, the true light. And these are the only two places in all the Bible where we see these two words together like this. And so if John is clearly using this phrase to refer to Jesus in John 1.9, he clearly says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He's clearly referring to Jesus as the true light in John 1, 9. And if he calls Jesus the true light there, then it must follow that he is also referring to Jesus when he talks about the true light that is already shining in 1 John 2, 8. I hope you can see that connection. The phrase is unique to these two instances, true light. The exact same two Greek words right next to each other in the original. And in John 1, 9, it's clearly talking about Christ. 
In 1 John 2, 8, he must be talking about Christ specifically. So let's get back to what John is saying in 1 John chapter 2. Let's consider what he's saying about why it is that God's commandments are now true in us. What is the reason for why God's commandments can now be practiced in truth in us? Or we could ask, who is the reason for why God's commandments can now be practiced in us? Or maybe to put it another way, to the point that I'm trying to make, who is it that provides the power needed to overcome our inability to put God's commandments into practice. Because we begin in darkness, unable to follow, and then something happens. We're empowered so that we can. And the answer as to why that is or who does that is clearly the true light that has shown already. It's Jesus who empowers us to have God's commandments truly practiced in our lives. But we might at this point think, why is it that we can't obey God's commandments without that kind of power? Should be a simple thing to do, right? Well, when you live in darkness, you cannot obey God's commandments ever. You just can't. And the reason for that is found in John's gospel again in chapter 3, where Jesus says that men do not turn to him because they love darkness rather than light. No one in darkness can even see God's commandments without the light of Christ first causing them to hate the darkness that they're in and then love the light of God's commandments instead. And so when the true light comes, when the life-giving power of Jesus invades a once-darkened heart, when that power arrives, then the freedom to follow God's commandments begins. And I love the imagery that John provides for us in how he describes the coming of this power. Look in this verse back in 1 John 2, 8. He says that the darkness is passing away. Now, there's a sense in which the darkness has fully left us when the light of Christ comes. Because if there's light, what is there not? Darkness. So if light is there, there's no darkness. But John says it's passing away. There's a sense in which... Certain things that pertain to darkness still pull on us and tempt us. And we know that to be true. We still, we still feel the pull of darkness sometimes. Sometimes we feel the pull very strongly even. It won't ever overtake us because we read in John 1 that the light has overcome the darkness and the darkness will never overtake it. But it still touches us in life because John says that it's passing away. It's on its way out. But this is contrasted with the wonderful thing that he says at the end of verse 8, where he writes that the true light is already shining. It's already come, set up its habitation, put down roots, and the light is pulsing continually at every moment in our hearts. The power has already come to our hearts and has caused light to continually shine forth in brilliance. And as I close this morning, I want to pose a simple question that I think will be encouraging for us to, to answer together. Consider this. Of all the ways that John could have pictured Christ as the power in our hearts that helps us to obey, why did he choose here, and actually so many other places in his writings, why does he choose to use the picture of Christ as light to be the thing that empowers obedience? 
Why light? He could have used the picture of life, like the vine and the branches. We get life source from the vine, and so we have life to obey. He could have referenced a similar idea in that Christ is the resurrection and the life. Resurrection power has come. He could have used that. He could have used the idea of the riches of grace that Christ gives to his people. Or he could have used any number of thoughts to convey our union with him. But he chose here to relate to us how Jesus empowers us in keeping God's commandments by calling him the true light that is already shining. And I believe this is the case because it shows us that the only thing separating us from obedience to God's commandments in every single instance, separating us from obe- the only thing preventing us from obeying is our vision. It's our spiritual eyesight, as it were. How we view God's commandments is the only thing that that determines whether or not we will obey them. And so Christ empowers us by shining his brilliantly clear light upon them so that we can see them as they really are. As God's people, we know what his commandments are. We believe them. The problem is we don't always see them as valuable as they actually are. And so Christ is there in our hearts, as it were, like a, like, a, like a beacon of light illuminating God's commandment for us at any moment to help us see how wonderfully valuable that is so that we will truly obey it instead of dis- disobeying it. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you're at a point in life when you are tempted to complain about how you cannot afford to pay a certain bill. We've probably all been there. So in front of you essentially are two options. One, you can distrust God and complain in your heart that he hasn't provided what you think you need, and we've all done that. Or two, you can realize in your heart that it is a joy to be content and to trust in God's good providence. Those are the two options before you. And I would argue that you will always pick the one of those two that is the most attractive to you. That's just what we do as humans. In the first case, if your flesh is craving to feel angry and whiny, I just want to feel upset right now because my flesh wants that. If you doubt in your mind that God is good, if you think in your mind that all of this could have been avoided if only, and then fill in the blank, whatever that might be, If those ideas are floating in your mind, then you'll find the complaining option more attractive because your spiritual vision is at that moment so tuned as to view complaining as more valuable than contentment. That's how it works. Your spiritual eyes are blurred such that you cannot truly see the true nature of things and therefore you choose to complain. But... If your vision is adjusted differently, if the options are illumined in your spiritual eyes differently, if you view this situation as one in which your good God has planned something out from the very beginning for you, if you remember that Christ has supplied all your spiritual need as your good shepherd, if you have a heart that longs to obey God more than the trivial matters of this world, 
If those kinds of things are in the forefront of your heart and mind, then you will, of course, choose to be content instead of to complain. And to our point, the only difference between making that decision is if you choose to be content, the illuminating power of Christ in your heart has shown on the goodness of God's commandment to be content. And it has been made to appear so valuable to you that you go ahead and choose that one instead of the option to complain. Christ illumines and shines forth in great clarity how wonderful God's commandment is. And so you choose it because it is most attractive. He powerfully shines in our hearts to make God's commandments more attractive than anything else. And he does that continually. That is how Christ empowers us in connection to God's commandments. And I hope these points are all helpful for you to think about. I hope it's helpful to see that Christ has provided God's commandments to you. He, as both God and man, serves as the only one who can bring God's mind to us in a way that we can understand. I hope it's helpful to see that he not only brings God's commandments to us, but he also practices them for us. He's our pattern to follow. He obeyed them as well. And then hopefully it is continually helpful for us to think of Christ as the illumining light in our hearts that empowers us to view God's commandments as always being better than life itself. And I hope we will put that into practice. When you're tempted to sin, pray and ask your Savior to shine his powerful illuminating light on God's commandments that you know to be true in the word so that you will see them as more valuable than anything because we all know it is more valuable than anything. It's just in the moment we need the gracious, illuminating power of Christ to help us in our weakness. Let's pray to him together. Father, thank you for the grace that we see in your word, the grace of your commandments. You have given them as a expression of your character to your people so that we can be like you. And of course, that's what we long for. But Father, we confess that we, at every moment, are tempted to sin and tempted to devalue your commandments. We value our flesh and the ideas of the world and the whispering lies of our enemy as more valuable than your commandments in various moments, and we sin. And Father, we confess that as wrongdoing, first and foremost, because we have forsaken the greatest good of all in your commandments and exchanged it for a terrible evil, which is the abuse of our flesh or the abuse of our thinking or whatever it is that you've given us for our own advantage when we sin. Father, may we not do that. May we at all times and at every point see your commandments as more important than all else, as more valuable than anything on earth, so that we will choose to follow them rather than our own ways. Christ, we beg you as our Savior that you would help us by empowering in our hearts with light to show us how beautiful and wonderful and good and attractive your commandments are. 
Help us so that we might follow them as you patterned for us. We pray this, that the Father might be glorified, and we ask it in the name of the Son. Amen.